Hello, church. Good to see everybody. It's a joy to be here. Been looking forward to this for a while. Grateful for Todd, Mike, Rick, and Matt, all the folks that are working so hard to get us back together again after a year of COVID. Amazing. It's a joy for me to be with the church gathering. I grew up in western Kentucky in Owensboro. Back in Owensboro, when I was in high school, this is a long time ago, if you had asked me about my view of Arabs, not that anyone ever did that, but I mean just for argument's sake, let's just say someone asked you that back in Owensboro, I would have said, well, all Arabs are Muslims. And uh, all Arabs hate Americans. That was kind of my provincial sort of TV view. Well, travel with me years and years later. I uh, left Owensboro, really not to return. Uh, I went to university uh, in Memphis, and then later I I went to the University of Kentucky. And I I learned about missions at the Urbana Missions Conference. I, I went there with my Young fiance, we were secretly engaged, 19-year-old, dumb kids. We've been married 42 years. Um, and I heard about missions, and I, I signed up. You know, I didn't know really what I was doing, but I signed up. I thought, that, that sounds great. And um, we began, my wife and I, Leanne, and I began directing short-term mission programs around the world, really. We started in Kenya, went to, as Todd mentioned, uh, Tunisia and than Guatemala. Tunisia was an amazing program because we took university students and assigned them in Muslim homes. Uh, And we discovered the delightful hospitality of Arabs, the wonderful love that they have of family. Um, And there we also discovered the Arab view of Americans, which were all Americans were Christians. And all Americans hated Arabs. That was kind of their TV view of us. Well, I was on this trip. Of course, a lot of those wrong impressions of each other were slain. Uh, And on this program, there's a young man named Hatem, who was a student at the University of Tunis. He's a Muslim guy. He was a joker, practical joker, competitive fella, university guy, great guy, uh, funny uh, very, very competitive with me. We, we formed this relationship that was sort of a, you know, one-upsmanship uh, personality. And uh, so one day, Hatem took us out to a Muslim beach where the Tunisians could swim and not be with decadent Europeans. And uh, we, we were out there swimming around, and I see this sandbar. It's probably oh, maybe 100 yards out from the beach. And I used to be on the, you know, junior high swim team. <laughs> I said, come on, come on, Hadam, I'll race you out to the sandbar. And Hadam is like, no, no, I must, I must go take a cigarette. And uh, you go out there, I'll meet you later. So I, I leisurely, I begin swimming leisurely out to the sandbar. And uh, then I notice that Hadam, true to form, has dove under me and he's going to beat me. He's going to try and beat me out to the sandbar. And that is not going to happen. So uh, I, this was just perfect. Hotham comes up out of the water back to me. And it's just, 
just my moment, right? I, I grab him in a perfect chokehold and take him down under, kaboosh. And I bring him back up. I'm laughing. He's sputtering just for good measure. I take him down again, kaboosh. I bring him up. I spin him around and it's not autumn. <laughs> it is a very frightened Arab guy that knows that an American has come to kill him personally. Uh, he's, I mean, eyes, biggest saucers. He's backing up to the beach. I'm following behind, behind him dumbly. You know, what do you say? I'm so, I'm so sorry. And he doesn't speak English. It's then I have almost this out-of-body experience where I see his extended family gathering on the beach, and some of these guys are buff. And I'm thinking, I have come to Tunisia to die on the beach. <laughs> so they gather up, and I kind of dripping wet. I come up out of, I'm on the beach. I, none of them speak English. You know what I need at this point, right? I need someone who speaks the language. <laughs> I, I need someone who can explain this case of mistaken identity. I need an ambassador. And uh, guess who shows up smoking a cigarette? It's Hotham. Hotham, come here. I grab him by the arm. I bring him over. I explain to Hotham what's happened. Hotham, fortunately for my progeny, thinks this is hilarious. <laughs> Tears are rolling down his cheeks as he explains to this family what has just happened. And uh, I'm invited in for lunch with the family. <laughs> I, get to, I get to eat breeks and uh, harissa, the lovely meals of Tunisia, because I had an ambassador, someone who could explain, someone who could interpret, someone who could speak the message I needed spoken to be spared death. You know, this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21, I love that you have a meditation on the passage before it's preached. It's best known for ambassadorship, but it's so much more. I'd like to read it again, just to take time to read it. And as I do, notice how gospel-saturated this passage is. Starting in verse 11, we're going to go all, all the way down to verse 21. And uh, keep your Bibles open. If, if you're over 40, keep your Bibles open. And if you're under 40, keep your Bibles on. Therefore, knowing fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But, we, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, for one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us 
the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be new sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As I mentioned, there's many things in this passage, and we would never plumb the depths of it. But let me pull out four things that I'd like to talk about, about being Christ's ambassadors. One is our motivation, the motivation of an ambassador in verses 11 through 15. Secondly, our understanding of people, how we view people in verses 16 through 19. Then thirdly, our role as, a, as Christian ambassadors in verse 20. And then finally, number four, our understanding of Christ's work in verse 21. So first, our motivation for ambassadorship. Paul is saying that we understand what's at stake. He's been talking in verses 9 and 10 about the judgment of God. And he says in verse 11, therefore we persuade people. That's the role of the ambassador. We persuade. Paul says our motivation is different than what people might see. It's not because we're proud in verse 12. He's been accused, Paul's been accused of being proud. Anytime you make the exclusive claims of Christ, that Jesus is the only way, people will call you proud. It's not because we're crazy in verse 13. Paul looks like a nut because he's standing for something that might get him killed. So it might look like both, pride and mental illness, but we know that's not it. It's because we know the fear of the Lord. And not only do we know the fear of the Lord in judgment, we know something else. We've concluded something in verse 14, that Jesus died for all, for everyone who would come to him, and that his death was for their sake in verse 15. That conclusion, this conclusion us to understanding that we don't live for ourselves. We don't live in a comfort zone. We don't keep other people at arm's length. We're willing to risk our reputations. We're willing to risk the raised eyebrow. You know, most of the world, most of the world's Christians fear the raised fist. In America, we, f- we fear the raised eyebrow. Oh, you're a Christian. So we persuade. We step out of our safe worlds and persuade. We don't hide from evangelism. We're committed. We're motivated. We're driven by boldness and even seeming craziness, as Paul acknowledges here, because of this amazing love of God in verse 14. I was flying back from Iraq last year for a funeral. I know this is a hard time in this church's life right now, this week. My deepest condolences for those of you who've lost loved ones, friends. 
And there's something about those times, aren't there, that galvanize our minds, galvanize us to the eternity uh, that lies ahead of all of us. I was talking to a young man on the plane as I thought about my mother-in-law's funeral that I was going home for. And uh, we struck up a conversation. We have nine hours together, right, on the plane. And uh, we struck up a conversation. He was from Scotland. And we talked, and, and um, I asked him about his faith. And he said, you know, I'm really a nothing. I, I, don't, I don't have faith one way or the other. I, I, I don't know if I believe in God or not. He said, what do you do? <laughs> well, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's interesting, he said. Where, where, are you, where are you a pastor? I said, I'm a pastor in Iraq. He said, Iraq? <laughs> Iraq? He said. Um, yeah, I said up north in uh, Kurdistan. We're kind of in between Syria and Iran and Turkey up there in that, that corner of Iraq with, with Baghdad and Mosul close by, and south, south to Baghdad and over to Mosul. And uh, sort of a tough neighborhood. He said, why in the world would anyone go pastor a church in Iraq? Well, there's a lot of ways, you know, a lot of ways to answer that question, right? Uh, but, I said, but I said, well, it's because I really, truly, genuinely believe that this guy, Jesus, rose from the dead. He said, fair enough. <laughs> we had a nine-hour flight together. That was just the first hour. There are times when we will look crazy. There are times when people will think bad thoughts of us. But they don't know what we know. He got up from the dead. The Stones rolled away. If you truly believe that, it will overcome all the opposition to sharing your faith, of being Christ's ambassadors. And this text, notice, is about living for others, not ourselves. That's about evangelism. We live for others, facing the slings and arrows that will come our way. Let me make a comment about this word, all. It comes up a lot in verses 15 and 15. Uh, the, point, uh, the point here Paul is making is uh, that all people, all people are now given this invitation. You, you don't have to be Jewish to become a follower uh, of Christ or united with God. Paul is not a universalist. He's not saying it's... He, he's not saying that every person in the world will come to Jesus. He's not a universalist. He says it's just limited to, to people that follow Jesus. That's the only limitation. All peoples are offered this amazing thing. Listen, I, I subscribe to a, the doctrine of limited atonement. I believe that Jesus died for the elect. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, don't worry about it. It's not that important. But if you do know what I'm talking about, let me remind you, there is no limited evangelism. 
There is no limited mission. The church is called to the nations, and we are full on in evangelism and missions if you're a Christian. Bottom line, bottom line in verses 11 through 15. We're motivated by the fear of the Lord, the acknowledgement of coming judgment, the conviction of the truth, and the love of Christ. That's, that's our motivation that moves us out in kind of crazy boldness and love for others. Well, secondly, this has ramifications for how we view people in verse 16. We, we were once um, motivated incorrectly about people, Paul says in verse 16. That's his sense. But ambassadors view people correctly. So, we reject sinful views of others. We reject fleshly, worldly views of others, worldly racist understandings of people, which is our natural sinful tendency. Paul says we even view Jesus from worldly eyes. So, so and you see this all the time, right? I, people make terrible statements about Jesus, even when they're trying to be nice. They say he was a a great teacher, or he was a a really good man, or he was a great prophet, all all of which kind of curse Christ with faint praise because, no, he was divine. He was the God-man, God incarnate, and anything less diminishes Christ. And Paul's point here in verse 16 is that if we saw Jesus that way, we're sure to see others through TV lenses, not the eyes of God. Like the people who live in my world, Arabs in the Middle East. A right understanding of people knows that there is no such thing as a mere mortal, as C.S. Lewis reminds us. C.S. Lewis says, you've never met a mere mortal. It's so true. Nations, arts, civilizations, all the things that people think are eternal. Actually, their lives are like a life of a gnat gone. But it's immortals we deal with who will live on one side or the other of the equation. You know, earth is kind of like a way station. The closest a Christian comes to hell, a true believer, the closest a Christian comes to hell is on earth. And the closest a non-Christian who dies in their sin comes to heaven is on earth. We're this midway place between two lines of eternity. All people, we understand all people, have the mark of the divine created in the image of God built with the ability to know God. That's why people have, every person has worth and value and dignity. So as Christian ambassadors, we check the tendency to hate those we don't like. At the same time, Christians understand all people to be sinners. And if you read Ephesians 2, not just sinners, but enemies of God in our natural state. So ambassadors, Christian ambassadors, don't glorify people that we admire, knowing knowing that every human...
fallen and sinful. We're broken in a broken world. And it was G.K. Chesterton said that living on earth is a lot like living on a shipwreck. There are many treasures to be found. But there's the, those treasures come with this sense that something's wrong. And that's our experience too, isn't it? We face heartache and sickness and even death. We recognize these are, these are elements of a broken world. So most importantly, in verse 17, we understand the potential of what divinely created yet fallen enemies of God can become. New creations. New creations in Christ, forgiven, restored, redeemed. I mean, is there any more joy in life than to see a new creation in Christ? And it happens it happens in ministry all around us to see people who have come to faith and they're growing in Christ. You know, we have uh, over the last uh, year, uh, last four years in Erbil, in Iraq, in an unreached people group, we've seen 26 people who come to faith, be baptized, and join our church. Um, and uh, let me just... I, I, I can pick numerous, but let me tell you about Mohendas. Mohendas uh, was very faithful in church. He was a legalist. Actually, he was a Pharisee, a genuine Pharisee. Uh, and he came every week, and he knew all the answers. And uh, he, he came to a home group, and he was spouting off in one home group about, about something. And Rafakat from Pakistan, after he politely listened to his... Uh, uh, monologue, turned to Mohendas and said, yes, Mohendas, but are you born again? And Mohendas said, no, I'm not, um, which was honestly, at least an honest Pharisee. And uh, so Rafakat from Pakistan told Mohendas from India, uh, you need to go read the book of Hebrews, read chapter 4. I don't know why he picked that. What a strange evangelistic text about entering into the rest of God. And yet Mohendas went home and read it and said, I do not want to miss the rest of God and submitted his life in faith that night to Christ. And we sort of didn't believe it at first. He'd been coming for years and been pretending. Uh, but there was such joy in the fellowship because everyone knew Mohendas was not a believer. We all knew it. He'd just been faking it for all those years. How easy it would have been for us to say that there are just too many obstacles in life for someone like me to reach someone like Mohendas. But what about you? What about you? Are, are there people in your life you think will never come to Christ? They're too far too sinful, too hard-hearted, too isolated, too difficult. Perhaps their lives look better than yours. Maybe they have everything they need, or seemingly. Maybe they live better than you. And as a believer, maybe you're tempted to think they don't need God. Don't believe it for a minute. People of the world around need Jesus because He offers something you can't live by just living a good life. 
are having a good life. But it's not just individuals. It's how ambassadors view the whole world. Paul says in verse 19 that God is reconciling the world. That is, it's a global message, not just parts of the world. It's not just here in Somerset, but the whole world, like my world for the last 20 years in the Arabian Peninsula or in Iraq. We've lived in a land that claims Jesus is not the Son of God. We certainly see that many Muslims honor Christ more than many Americans. They call him a good prophet. But again, to, to deny Jesus is divine is to cut the heart out of Christianity. And as I hear constant misinformation, I'm tempted to despair. There, there are <laughs> mosques all around our home, and they go off. They don't go off all at the same time. They're very loud. Um, and it starts off by saying, basically, uh, Allah is God, and he takes no partners, which is a direct statement about Christ, really. But there are no barriers to God. He's the one doing this. It's happening now. We need to open our eyes to the joy of the world and how our sovereign God is at work. Let me tell you a story about Nestron. Nestron uh, was a partner with us in ministry in Dubai, in student ministry. Um, and I know her well. I know her husband. I know her family. When she was 17 years old, she was in the shower, and she heard a voice. And the voice said, I'm going to wash you of your sin. Now, this is a young girl, 17 years old, who's never seen a Bible, never sung a hymn, never darkened the door of a church, wouldn't even know where to find a church if she wanted to. So she did what a good Muslim girl would do. She went to her imam. And she said, I heard this voice, and this man said he was going to wash me of my sin. Who was that? And the imam said, that was Jesus. He's the only prophet who talks that way. Pretty good for a, Mo a Muslim imam, huh? <laughs> and she said, thank you, and she went home. Her sister had come to faith in the Netherlands where she was living. One day she went to church. She was living as a secret believer. Went to church. A woman approached her in church and said, I had a dream last night. I never dream. I never have dreams. But this one was so real. I have to tell you about it. I dreamed that you were sitting on a bed talking to two women about Jesus. I don't really know what it means, but I think you're supposed to go home to Tehran. And uh, Nestoran's sister said, I, I, I can't go home. I don't have any money. And the woman said, no, you, you don't understand. This dream was so real. I've already bought your ticket. Nestoran's sister goes home. She knocks on the door. 
Nestoron opens the door. She says, I don't know why I'm here. And Nestoron says, no, I know why you're here. Jesus has spoken to me, and you've been in a Christian country, the Netherlands, and uh, you're here to tell us about Jesus. And so they go sit on the bed with her mother, two women, like in the dream. And both Nestoron and her mother come to faith. I am, for you, this story may be completely out of your experience or theology. Uh, It was sort of out of mine. And just just to give it some context, Nestron's conversion started for her a life of humiliation, jail, abuse, deportation. For their brave faith, she and her husband spent time in prison in Iran where they expected to die for their faith. In fact, they expected to die just as their pastor was murdered, discovered with 50 knife wounds in some forest. And yet they were released. They came back to us in Dubai. So don't go wishing for dreams and visions, particularly. And I just want to point out there are no barriers to God. There are no barriers to God. For me, the avalanche of misinformation came through the five mosques around our house. For you, it's the constant avalanche of social media and TV reports and all kinds of things that come to us about the Christian faith. And we see the hardening of hearts all around us, and yet... Don't look at that and think God can't come through or that the gospel has lost any power. Maybe you see people from other faith backgrounds and you set aside any hope that you might see them come to faith. Don't lose heart. Paul says, God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. Third thing, I want to talk about how we see our role. So it's not just our motivation. It's not just how ambassadors view people and and people in the world. Ambassadors is about how we see ourselves. So Paul says in verse 18, then again in verse 19 and 20, we are Christ's ambassadors, making his appeal through us. So Paul, Paul is very definitely giving us an ambassadorship image to make sure we understand our role. Let me me recount things that ambassadors do. Ambassadors exist. Their whole point in life as ambassadors is to deliver a message. So, according to Paul, when you sit down with coffee with a friend, spiritual topic comes up, you begin to share your faith, the gospel, with a friend about Jesus, you represent the foreign power of the kingdom of God. Now, frankly, you all don't look like that to me, and I don't look like that to myself, but it's true. We represent the foreign power of the kingdom of God when that happens. So, let me give you, I'm sliding in six sub-points here, six sub-points about ambassadorships. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Number one, 
ambassadors are not at liberty to change the message. You can't nice it up. You need to give the message as delivered. There's all kinds of historical, uh, uh, interesting historical mistakes that happened because the ambassador thought he knew better than the government back home and really messed things up. Secondly, ambassadors don't leave the message undelivered. Slay your fears of evangelism. Thirdly, ambassadors, by definition, don't live at home. That's the point. They go other places. They're wanderers in the world. Now, let me be quick to put an asterisk on this. I don't think that means that you have to pack up your family and move to Dubai like I did. I think it means that all of us as Christians are a bit uncomfortable in the world, knowing it's not our home. Number four, we shout out the message like Paul does to the world. It's a little confusing in verse 20, but Paul repeats the message that we shout out. He's not, he knows the Corinthians are Christians. They're messed up, but he knows the Corinthians are, are Christians. He's repeating a message we shout out to the world. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God in verse 20. Number five, this should come out of who we are in life and ministry. The gospel should flow out of all that we do. Paul says that we walk in line with the gospel in Galatians chapter 1. Number six, don't assume the gospel. Keep talking about it. We don't graduate from the gospel. We live in it. We soak in it. We eat it and breathe it. And such that the gospel just comes out of us. If you're living in it, if you're soaking in the gospel, it will come out of you. When we uh, started student ministry in Dubai, and students started coming to faith, quite to our shock and amazement, uh, I, I knew what they needed. Leadership development. We had a leadership development course that I'd done for years with students here in America. So I thought, we'll do a, a student leadership course. So we gathered up all the, the new Christians, and we were going to train them up on how to lead small group Bible studies and how to disciple other people. And you know, So it's a leadership development course. And we invited 13 of our top leaders. They all came to our house and sat in our living room. And there uh, was one uninvited guest, Akil. His name was Akil. And um, I, I pulled Nissen, one of the top student leaders over. I said, Nissen, come here. So Nissen, yeah, dutifully, yeah, what? Uh, I said, well, Akil's here uh, for our leadership development course. He goes, yeah. I said, well, Akil's a, a Hindu. <laughs> uh, Nissen said, yeah. Uh, I said, listen, he can't lead a Bible study. He can't be involved in leadership. He's a Hindu. Well, you know, he wanted to come. He thought it looked good on his resume, you know. And I didn't want to tell him no. And I said, listen, he can't come. This, you know, there's security issues. And, and so Nissen said, okay, Nissen was not about to do anything. And just, just in the interest of full disclosure, actually, Akil was really interested in a cute little Indian girl named Shabnita. And I just completely missed that. So Akil actually turns out to be one of our, our most faithful guys. He kept coming every week. It was like a nine-week program and a half day of training. And finally, after three or four times, maybe fifth time, I, I like, Akil can't be here. I got things to talk about that I just don't 
thing. So, Akil, can I talk to you? He goes, yeah, I, I've been wanting to talk to you too, Mac. Um, okay, well, you go first, I said. He goes, I've become a Christian. And I said, how'd that happen? And, uh, you know, I write books on evangelism. Duh. So he goes, well, you know, I really like your course and everything. But what everybody's excited about here is the gospel. And that's what they're all talking about, about Jesus. And so as I listened to them, I realized I could repent of sin and be forgiven by God if I just put my faith and trust in Christ. And so I did that last week. And he said, what, what did you want to talk to me about? And I said, nothing, never mind. Listen, come here. Okay, keep inviting the Hindus to our leadership course. <laughs> it wasn't my plan of evangelism, but evangelism happens whenever people are getting together and talking about what they should talk about, which is the gospel. You know, when you guys gather, talk about the Lord. Don't talk about sports. I love talking about sports. Uh, I told your music director, I've been a little bit like a drunk in a bar. Back to America, I get to watch sports. But don't just talk about sports. Don't talk about the weather. Don't talk about your latest vacation. Talk about Jesus, what he's done in your life. Talk about to each other. Let other people that are listening listen in, especially the children. I think of our team, we took three couples over to Dubai. And... Um, it was our greatest joy to talk about the gospel because so many people were coming to faith. And uh, there, were, there were 12 of us. So uh, we had six adults and, and no, more than that, four and three and five. What's that? Nine and 14 kids. <laughs> and all of them have come to Christ. And I think it's because we were just talking about the gospel all the time. It was my heart. My, my sons say a big part of their testimony, all three of my boys, walking with the Lord, they all say, one of the reasons that I took Christianity seriously before I, before I put my faith and trust in Christ was that my parents did. I saw my parents really genuinely believed this. I implore you, like Paul says, be reconciled with God. Call it out. Call it out everywhere you go. Hey, listen, some of you listening in today, maybe you're like Akil. By the way, Akil and Shamnita got married, and I did their wedding. <laughs> that was incredible. Um, but maybe you're like Akil, you're sitting in here listening in. Hey, this message is for you too. See yourself through God's eyes. Someone who is divinely created and yet cut off from God because of your sin and rebellion. And understand your potential too. Understand it, that you can be reconciled to a loving God, a forgiving Father who sent His Son to pay the penalty for your sins on the cross, not just the world's sin, your deepest, darkest sins, so that you might be forgiven, that you might know Union with Christ. What's, what's required of you is not to claw your way back into God's favor and become good, but to repent of sin and turn to Him and trust in faith. That's the message we shout. I'm like Paul. I shout that out. I want you to shout it out. Which brings us to our last point, point four. Our understanding of God's work in the message of the gospel, verse 21. 
So we're rightly motivated. We have a clear view of people, and uh, we have an understanding of the world and our role in it, a clear understanding of what God has done. And then we come to this verse. It bears repeating, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, much ink has been spilt on verse 21 because it's about two major, huge theological understandings, imputed righteousness and substitutionary atonement, all in 24 words. There, these are big words, big fancy words, big seminary words. I never went to seminary, but I understand they use these words in seminary. And they're good words to understand. Because this is the heart of the gospel message. It's a behind-the-scenes look at what God has done on the cross. And if you don't get this, this, this thing in, in this verse, you, you, don't, you don't have to have no big words, but you miss the heartbeat of the Christian faith. Imputed righteousness means a righteousness that does not come from inside of you. It's given. Our righteousness comes to us because of Christ contrary to all other religions in the world. It comes to us from God. It's not self-righteousness, but God-given righteousness. I'm probably like you. I don't like self-righteous people. You probably don't either. I don't like self-righteousness when I see it in my own self, (laughs) which happens a lot, especially when people cut me off in traffic. I consign them to the lake of eternal fire. But when I cut someone off in traffic, it's because I'm late, right? We judge other people by their actions and ourselves by our motives. But but God's righteousness is a given righteousness where God took the sins of the world, of all who would repent and believe, and put them on his perfect sinless son, that we might be forgiven by God. So Paul says, Jesus became sin. He became sin. Sin was imputed into Jesus. Jesus refers to this as drinking the cup of wrath. Barring from language of Isaiah 53, he was bruised. He was bruised for our sin. And then God takes all who repent and believe in Jesus and imputes into them Christ's righteousness. So he declares us not only forgiven, but having the righteousness of Christ. And so this morning when you got up and you forgot to have your quiet time, Christ didn't. And you're in Christ. Or if you had a horrible sexual thought, Christ didn't. Or or you didn't share your faith when you should have. That's all right. Jesus never shrunk back from telling the truth. And you are in Christ. You have his righteousness. So when God looks at you, he doesn't look at those things you've sinfully done. He looks at Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. That's imputed righteousness. I love what John MacArthur said in the summary of the meaning of this text. On the cross, this is a quote, on the cross, God treated Christ as if he had committed all the sins of every sinner who would ever believe so that he could treat every believer as if they had lived Christ's perfect life. Isn't that beautiful? Imputed righteousness. Let me explain substitutionary atonement, which is also in this verse. Just as imputed righteousness 
is something that comes from outside of us. Substitutionary atonement, atonement means to pay for sin. That comes from outside of us too. We don't atone for sin ourselves. We don't pay for sin ourselves. You can't. You took all your money and gathered it all up and offered it to God as payment for your sin. You would just be adding one more sin to your life. You can't do it. Most religions, and of course, certainly Muslim religions, think you pay for that by yourself. But substitutionary atonement is the atonement of God atoning for you, paying for you. You know, this is throughout the Scriptures. Um, I used to think, naively, that the Old Testament didn't really have anything to do with the New Testament, or certainly not specifically about the death of Jesus. But God was preparing what He would do on the cross through all of the Old Testament, and it's one of the ways that we see uh, the gospel in the Old Testament is to look at the sacrificial law. Um, it points to Christ. It prepares the world for Jesus' sacrifice. It starts off in Genesis 22, very, the very first book of the Bible. Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Abraham is faithful to that. Uh, this was a great joy that Genesis 22 was a great joy to preach in uh, the Muslim world, since Abraham is well-known. And I loved pointing out that contrary to how I had grown up, this text on a us being like Abraham. So when I was younger, uh, you know, at, at Genesis 22, it was preached on, it was basically a, a parable of morals, right? So Abraham was faithful. You need to be faithful. Abraham gave up everything. You need to give up everything. Abraham was even willing to slay the thing he loved the most. You should slay the thing you love the most, right? I mean, that's how I heard it growing up. Hey, uh, I haven't been with you very long, but I want to tell you, you're not Abraham. (laughs) You're not. It's an image of God. You know who we are? We're Isaac. We're bound in sin. We're on the altar The knife of God's judgment and wrath hangs over us justly. And our only only hope is that lamb caught in the thicket. God provides a sacrifice. That's a substitute, substitutionary atonement. So when the knife is stopped, there's the provision of God. And so when Jesus shows up, And John the Baptist says, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They didn't really understand, but they understood enough. They got it. (laughs) Started in the first book of the Bible. The entire Bible from Genesis on talks about this event Paul is talking about in verse 21, that Christ became sin for us. He was the provision of God, and he took my place. That's substitutionary atonement. Okay, so precious is that message to you. When I go over limited atonement or substitutionary atonement or imputed righteousness, I mean these theological terms, is that, do you just fire up with joy thinking about that? Or are you kind of wondering about lunch? Are you willing to give your life for it, this message? 
I, I'm willing to bet that most of you, many of you, most of you are willing to do that. I, I, I suspect that many are laying down your life day by day in the hope of the gospel. And I'm so grateful for you. You don't have to go to a rock to do that. Are you willing to call others to die for it? It's a bit harder, actually. I was talking to this kid, Muhammad. He's from Sudan. Um, it's after church. I just preached on Genesis 22. Nissen, the young leader, winds his way up to me through the crowded church, Redeemer, Church of Dubai. 1,200 people there. And um, he says, Muhammad wants to talk to you. Muhammad, please sit down. Muhammad uh, has uh, a hungry look on his face as he spies my Bible, and he says, is that a Bible? And I have an immediate selfish thought. Darn, I wish I'd brought my cheaper Bible. <laughs> yes, it is, Muhammad. Would you like it? Oh, I would very much. Had a lot of my good notes in it. Mama said, I, I've never heard this before, but it strikes my heart, and I think it's true. Nissan and I are going to go for lunch and talk more about it. But if my father finds out, he will kill me. And he doesn't mean grounded. Put in the ground is what he meant. Let me confess to you, there's always this little hitch in me, right? When uh, you come to that point and you realize, here is a kid staring death in the face for what I'm hoping he will do. But I want to tell you long ago, I had to decide that it is far better to come to Jesus, be forgiven of sin, have imputed righteousness through the substitutionary atonement of Christ put on my account for a week and face God knowing him than to go through life eking out what little pleasure you can from the world and die without Christ and stand before him without hope. And so I said, Muhammad, you will not regret following Jesus. And so Nissan took Muhammad out for lunch to the Dubai Mall, and by all accounts, Muhammad came to faith. His father called him home, and we haven't heard from him since. But I think I'll meet him again. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel enough to call others to die for it? It's part of our call as ambassadors, right? Make sure that we understand the preciousness of the work of God for us on the cross. So remember, brothers and sisters, what marks Christ's ambassadors. Our motivation, our view of people, the grasp of our role, and a clear understanding of God's work in the gospel. Amen.